So this morning, we're going to continue in our series, How to Defend Your Faith and Stay Friends. And it's very quickly a a debate between uh, a good friend of mine, Emily, um, who I and myself, who I've known since uh, we were uh, late high school when I started going to youth group. And she has, um, since that time, she has moved to a position of, she never really believed in God, but she went to youth group for the social aspect of it. Um, but she was the young lady who, um, because of her gesture and her kindness, got me to come back to church the second time because I wasn't going to come back. And so 30 years later, I'm on Facebook. She Facebook friends me. Um, we connect again. We start talking. I realize where, which direction she's going. We get into this discussion that's been going on for about uh, eight, ten years now. And so we're in this series called How to Defend Your Faith and Stay Friends. And in First John, actually in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that had been made. Emily and I were, are basically at this point in the discussion debating the first cause of the universe. What is the first cause? And obviously, I believe that God is the first cause of all things. And she, she believes that, well, you know, nothing is the first cause of all things, or she doesn't know what the first cause of all things are, but we would go back and forth. And at one point in the discussion, she wrote this. About the beginning of the universe, I have another imagination game for you. What if I don't care how it began? Uh, what if I told you it doesn't matter how it began? Yes, I'm yelling. The compulsion to answer the question of where we came from and its companion question, where are we going, has been the bane of humanity. We have invented religion, wars, fictions, rules, conflicts, and explanations at nauseam. Imagine for a moment, if you can, that it doesn't matter. Imagine if being here, presently fully engaged in life is all that matters how would that make you feel and think it makes me feel free and happy and i responded to her i have imagined okay i've imagined what it'd be like before and after i became a christian not just after i was a christian but before so i've i've been through that and i said i just can't turn off my mind and enjoy what is because it's what is that causes the questions in the first place i lived i live my life i i have thoughts and 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 when you live your life and you you're, those questions are coming out of your very existence Who am I? What is my purpose? How did I get here? Where am I going after I die? These are, these are questions that come out of, okay, the fact that we exist, that we, that we exist at all. So it's very hard to kind of turn your mind off and enjoy what is because what is causes the questions in the first place. My friends, the answer, and this is important, the answer to those questions that don't matter from her perspective should really determine how you live your life. Asking those questions and answering this question, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Those are significant questions. The why questions of life make life worth living and need to be answered. Emily continued, I cannot, 
and therefore will not accept the idea of creation. It requires me to eliminate rationality, logic, evidence. Just can't do that. And I recognize you must believe the creation story for your faith rests upon it. Your faith rests upon it, she said. Now, you can read my response because actually I turned, this is what the series is about, I turned our conversations into a book. So if you want, if you need, if you'd like to get it, it's out at Wise Words. Um, but I'm not going to take the time this morning to go through my answer to that specific question because I want to do something a little different this morning. We talked about it last week. We talked about asking some questions, being the ones who ask the questions so that people can actually see the futility of their worldview. So what I want to do this morning is I want to ask some questions. I don't really want to defend, okay, that God is the creator of the universe. I want to ask some questions of my own. And I really, the reason I want to do it this way is I want you to kind of take some notes, if you will, and then ask these same questions when the discussion comes up. Because it's usually the Christians who are answering the really difficult questions, and it's usually the atheists that are asking all the difficult questions, but not answering them. And there's plenty of difficult questions to go around. So let me start with this story. I was a weird child. I was eight years old and I was laying, I'd lay in bed and I would wonder about life and about the universe. And, and my mind would go consistently to how did I get here? Like I'm here, I'm laying in bed. Well, how did I get here? And I would think about nothing. And I would think that at some point there was nothing, but then I would think, how did nothing create everything? If there was nothing, how did nothing end up creating everything? And then how did I come out of that? How did I get here? And honestly, it gave me nightmares. I had actual night terrors for years because I had these thoughts going through my mind and they, they, they couldn't be answered. And so I would have night terrors. I remember in high school. I would sit in science class and I would really, and I was not a believer at this point, okay? I would sit in science class and I would really struggle with the whole idea of evolution. I would struggle with this whole idea of of evolution because it contradicted so many natural laws. So in the beginning of the year, they're teaching about the natural laws, the laws of the universe, things that are just, that govern everything else. And then evolution would contradict those natural laws, and then no one would, would explain the contradictions. Well, you're saying this now, here, I'm being tested on this, and then you're saying this now, and that this is a contradiction, and no one would explain the contradictions. As a matter of fact, to be really honest with you now, and I know sometimes we maybe ask it sarcastically, and I have to admit, there's going to be a lot of sarcasm in this sermon. And I don't want to call it sarcasm. It's just going to be a little fun. Okay? I want, to ha- I want to have a little fun with this. So that's my attitude going into it. But a lot of times you ask questions in high school. You kind of raise your hand. And I've had students, okay, get kicked out of class for asking questions. And it's like, well, don't kick the person out of class. Answer, answer the question. So again, this morning, I don't want to defend, I don't want to defend God as creator of the universe. I want atheists to defend their naturalistic worldview. Okay? So that's what I'm, that's, this is the whole gist of this sermon. I want atheists to defend their naturalistic worldview. Um, here's the deal. 
I have absolutely no problem with adaptation. Never have. Made sense to me that, that plants and animals and people, whatever, we adapt to our environment. I believe that God has genetically encoded us with the ability to adapt to certain environments. That's why rabbits turn white in the winter in some places and then brown in the summer. I got no problem with adaptation whatsoever. But here's the thing. Even if you could prove to me Okay, that God does not exist. Even if you could prove to me that God does not exist, I would not believe in evolution as it's presented today because of the mountain of unanswered questions. And not only the mountain of unanswered questions, but the, if you will, the intellectual shell game that is played all the time. It's like just when you think you have something down, where's the truth? Where's the truth? We're here? No, no, no. We changed the game. And not only that, but when you ask questions, you're intellectually intimidated. Even in college, if you ask a question that, that confronts the naturalistic worldview, they, they treat you like you're some kind of idiot. Okay? Some kind of fool who would question the, the absolute truth of evolution or the naturalistic worldview. And that's, I have a, I really have a problem with that because there are so many, for me personally, there are so many unanswered questions and intellectual shell games. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to be asking questions, all right? So it's not going to be point number one, point number two, point number three. I'm going to be asking questions and kind of going through the questions. So here's my first question that the naturalist has to answer. How did the universe come into existence? There are three possibilities, okay? Three possible option, options. Number one, the universe created itself. Number two, the universe is self-existent, always existed. It's existed for eternity. It's eternal. Or number three, that the universe was created, okay? So it created itself. It was always in existence, never had a beginning, or that the universe uh, was created. So let's look at option number one. The universe created itself. All right. So for some, for something to create itself, we're using logic now for something to create itself, it would both have to exist in order to have the power to act and not exist in order to be created at the same time. Sinking in. So it would have to exist and not exist at the same time. This is a total contradiction. Self-creation is illogical. Okay, it's an, it's an illogical position to take based upon all the knowledge, all that we know scientifically, all that we understand and logic. We know that from nothing, nothing comes. This isn't uh, that it doesn't come out of like Genesis or anything. This is just sign from nothing. Nothing comes. So we have to that has to be understood. This is an illogical worldview. It's an irrational worldview. The person arguing this position is breaking the law of non-contradiction and is basically ignoring good science, which is the foundation of your worldview. So let's kick that one out. The universe created itself. Number two, the other option. The universe has always ex- existed. To address this response, we need to understand, we have to have a basic understanding of the second law of thermodynamics. 
The second law is concerned with, in a, in a basic way, is concerned with heat, the flow of different forms of energy. Okay, so heat, different forms of energy. Everything, everything in the universe, everything is losing its, its usable energy to do its work. All right. And the best example I can give you, just a well, not the best, a simple one is I took this cup of coffee. Philip uh, filled it up with blazing hot coffee this morning, early this morning, about maybe eight something. And uh, it was so hot. If I would, it would have burned my mouth. Now it's 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 room temperature. It's cool because the the energy in the cup that was so that all the energy there, the heat has basically gone into the cup, the styrofoam cup out of and into the environment. It's usable energy is pretty much gone. That's the way the you that's just a second law of thermodynamics. That's how the world works. Okay, so if the universe was eternal, if the universe was eternal, it would have already run out of all of its usable energy or or the second law of thermodynamics is wrong. It's not right. It's untrue. So this worldview is illogical and irrational. Number three, the universe had to be created. That's rational and that's logical. It didn't create itself, right? It didn't exist forever. And, and honestly, I just gave you some very simple explanations and scientific reasons why the universe cannot be eternal. Okay, go look it up yourself. There's so many other other stronger arguments, if you will, that we can't go into this morning to prove that the universe didn't create itself and the universe isn't eternal. So therefore, it had to be created. So my worldview is not illogical or irrational. My next question Okay, how did life originate? How did life originate? Now, again, each of these questions, we could sit down and go for hours, days, okay, days. We can't do that. So how did life originate? Evolutionist Paul Davies admitted, admitted, no one knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organized themselves into the first living cell. So no one knows. How did that happen? Like, how does something go from non-life to life? Just spontaneously erupt from non-living to living. We just accept this stuff sometimes without asking difficult questions. Andrew Knoll, professor of biology at Harvard, said this. We don't really know how life originated on this planet. So you don't, so your worldview is based on things you have no clue because it's impossible mathematically. Okay. It's impossible in pretty much every way. It's, it's impossible, but it, you say it happened. So, and this is important. This is an important question. How did life originate? It's important because the entire evolutionary worldview is based upon this foundation. But honestly, the pastor said sarcastically, don't worry about it. Okay. Because you have faith in evolution. You, no, really. I mean, I'm, you have faith. You have faith in evolution. You have faith that nothing created everything. That just boom. It just nothing. Something came from nothing. You have faith that that happened. You have faith that, that lifeless chemicals spontaneously organized themselves and, and, and created the first cells, living cells. You have faith. 
There was no life, but you have faith that non, non-living chemicals, lifeless chemicals spontaneously organized themselves and created the first cells. Hey, it's cool. Faith is cool. And now you're probably thinking, some people are probably thinking, well, where did God come from? I'm not the one answering questions this morning. You are. So I'll just kind of. I say God is the first cause of all things. Something needs to be eternal. You say nothing's eternal. I say God's eternal. A little side note. Little, little, just a little side note as I was processing through this. Why do you believe that something impersonal created something personal? How could something impersonal, why do you believe that something impersonal created something personal? Loving, kind, um, we're compassionate, we're empathetic, we're sympathetic. We, uh, we, we, we would some, throw ourselves in front of a train for somebody else. We, the arts, we love the arts, aesthetic beauty. We, we, love, to, we love to create, we love to design. Um, that's just who we are. We are personal beings. The idea we see a sunset or a sunrise and, and without anyone ever telling us to say this or feel this, we see something beautiful and we say, that's beautiful. We get goosebumps. We're overwhelmed when we see something majestic like the, you know, like, like, you know, the Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or just we're awed by it. We're inspired by it. Why would you believe that something impersonal created something personal? Wouldn't it be more, just use logic, wouldn't it be more logical to believe that something personal created us? So let's pause for a second. Emily said, my worldview rests on creation. And just a little side note here. um, The Christian worldview rests on the foundation of it is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Creation is very important, obviously. I mean, it makes all kinds of sense. Creation is important. But if you want to bring out the big guns against our worldview, you go after the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that didn't happen, then it, none, of it, none of it matters at all. And it's one of the most easily historically defended things in history. So that's, that's where our, our worldview actually rests. Her worldview rests on nothing created everything. So first, nothing created everything. And then life, then just life leaped into existence from non-life. So nothing created everything. And then, then non-life, just leap, life leaped into existence from non-life. George C. Simpson of Harvard University declared this. Virtually all biologists agree that life on earth rose spontaneously from non-living matter. Here's the deal, guys. And I'm, I, am not being so, I am not being funny or whatever else. Um, it, takes more, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a, 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 a person who believes in God. I, don't, I, I honestly do not have enough faith, okay, to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith. That's why before, before I believed in God, I rejected this whole naturalistic worldview. Why? Honestly, I'll be really honest with you because I didn't have enough faith to believe it. I looked at it and said, this just makes no sense. 
I was eight years old laying in bed going, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm here. I didn't believe in God. I didn't know anything about God. So I'm left with, okay, how did I get here? And that gave me night terrors because I didn't have an answer because there is no answer and not a logical one. It's, it's, I, again, that's why I rejected evolution before I believed in God. Because you say, well, you believe in God. Of course you're going to reject evolution. No, 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 no. I rejected evolution before I believed in God. I only believed in God because when it was presented to me, it made more logical, rational, and reasonable sense Okay, than the alternative. Professor, um, Princeton professor Edwin Conklin said this. The probability of life originating from an accident that is uh, is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. The chance of this happening, okay, what they said happened, there's a better chance, okay, he basically, I'll, I'll read it again. That this happened by accident or by luck, okay, is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. And then Sir Fred Hoyle, the eminent astrophysicist of Great Britain, wrote this. The chance that higher life forms have emerged in this way is comparable with a chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. No, so if you're a kid, let's just play this for a second, okay? What they're saying is there's a better chance, okay, that if you take a tornado and a tornado comes through and you have a junkyard with like old cars and old wreck things and you throw all your garbage in there, all the garbage is in there, and a tornado comes around and picks up all the garbage and then when the tornado dissipates, when it goes away, there's a plane there, a 747 plane, all in working condition that you can get on and fly. There's a better chance of that than evolution being true. Statistically. I would like to know, I would like to know, what is the probability of nothing creating a 747? At least with the tornado and the junkyard, you have something. I say, what's the probability of nothing creating a 747? Okay, so my next question. Where are the expected countless millions of transitional fossils? Darwin talked about this all time, all the time. There's no, he can't find the transitional fossils from one thing to another so that the things evolve. It bothered him and it, it was difficult for him all the way through his life. And it's still a problem today. It's still a problem today. You know the evolutionary tree that you guys have in your high school, uh, you know, science book? That's based on imagination, not on the fossil record. Okay? That's based on someone's imagination more than it's based on any fossil record. The famous Harvard paleontologist and evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould wrote this. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. Let's not tell everybody that we don't have the actual evidence and proof that all this happened. It's the trade secret of paleontology. Now, again, we can just go into this for hours, not going to, because I, I, I have other questions I want to get to and have fun with. Okay, here's one of my favorites. <laughs> how did they find, how did they find soft tissue in a supposed 60 to 80 million year old fossil or fossils now? How did they find, hear what I'm saying, how did they find soft tissue 
in a supposed 60 to 80 million year old fossil. Molecular paleontologist Mary Schweitzer of North Carolina State University of Raleigh and her colleagues presented evidence that they had successfully recovered and identified collagen, a type of protein in the femur of a 80 million year old duck-billed dinosaur. And then Schweitzer also, with her team, announced that they had found collagen, a type of protein, in a 68 million year old T-Rex femur. Now, here's the deal, guys. Every single person in this room was taught in your science class that soft tissue could not exist for more than a million years, which I find that fascinating to start with, a million years soft tissue remaining. But what they were taught is that, that you could not, it was impossible for soft tissue to last more than one million years. And if you question that at the time, you're again a moron. Some crazy loon who believes in God and doesn't want to accept reality. But wait a second. Now you found soft tissue in a 68 to 80 million year old femur. So now the answer is soft tissue can survive basically as long as we need it to in order to keep our theory going. Why not look at something and say it's impossible for this to happen? And I was watching when Mary Schweitzer actually was it was on like one of the channels and she was pulling and it was stretching and she was like she was this is impossible. This is impossible. This is impossible. It is impossible, Mary. It is. But the impossible becomes possible when you don't believe in God. Instead of looking at the evidence in the lab, okay, we're talking about not what happened 80 million years ago. We're talking about what's happening right in front of you. Say this is not true. It can't happen. It's impossible. Now it's happening. Instead of revising your theory, now it's possible for soft tissue to exist in an 80 or 68 million year old fossil. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm asking the questions. How can it happen? Next. This one is one of my favorites. How, how do living fossils remain unchanged over supposed hundreds of millions of years? Okay, living fossils are something that in the fossil record from, my gosh, okay, and now it's still alive today and, ha- and it hasn't changed. How is that possible? Professor Gould wrote this. The maintenance of stability within the species, so you don't really maybe get it, okay, what's translated means it didn't change at all, okay? So you have something that's whatever, how many hundreds of millions of year old, hadn't changed at all, must be considered a major evolutionary problem. Yes, professor, it is. It is a major evolutionary problem, just like finding soft tissue in an 80 million year old duck-billed dinosaur fossil. Let me share a few of my favorites in this category. There are tons. There are tons. The horseshoe crab is one of thousands of organisms living today that show little or no fossil changes in their fossils. Okay, so let's put up the, so there you have it. All right, so there is a horseshoe crab. Um, and there is a horseshoe crab that crawled up on the beach in New Jersey about two days ago. So now here, now, so it hasn't changed, right? Now, so here, let's just walk with me through this. 
So in the posit, and I had 200 million years here in my notes, because that's what I first read, and then I studied more and more this past week and everything. It's actually between four and 500 million years old. Go back to that one. 500 million years, four or 500 million years. Let's give it 350 million years, just to be fair. 350 million years ago, that's what they find. And I'm all saying, I don't agree with that, but that's what they say. And then yesterday, that guy crawled up to mate with another one on the beach in New Jersey. 400 million years later, and in the, here's what I want to get to you. In the supposed 400 and whatever million years that the horseshoe crab has remained unchanged, okay, no evolution, virtually, hear me now, listen to what I'm saying, virtually all reptiles, all dinosaurs, all birds, all mammals, and all flowering plants have evolved in that period of time. Evolved from, and you're talking evolution from, you know, whatever it was to, there it is, okay? In that same period of time, all dinosaurs, all reptiles, almost all the birds, all mammals, all flowering plants, all evolved during that period of time. But the only thing we actually have evidence of that's still in existence is that dude, and he looked the same as that dude. And how about my buddy? This is my, my favorite one. My buddy, the coelacanth fish. Okay, the coelacanth. They were extinct. These were extinct 60 million years ago. Or as my son Josh likes to say, or were they? That's what he tells me. Like, I'll say something. He's like, this guy, but, or was she? Or were they? So 60 million years ago, this guy goes out of existence. But then... Some guy was fishing, okay, in 1938 and caught one. And that's not him, but, you know, we didn't have that technology in 1938. Okay, and then I found out this morning, which is really, really funny, okay, David Vermont, you all know David Vermont, one of our pastors, his buddy John Butler's grandfather caught caught the fish. And then he ate it, and they were all extinct. And it was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me! They ate the last one, you idiot! No, he didn't, you know, he probably ate it, but he didn't know. It wasn't the last one. They're spread all over the world, coelacanths. They're all over the place, having a good time. They're just doing their thing. (laughs) So then I started thinking. And I started thinking about that song. LeBeau, I'm afraid I've been thinking. A dangerous pastime, I know. So I was thinking. I don't know why I sang that song. I just wanted to sing it. So I was thinking, okay, if they were if they were supposed to be extinct 60 million years ago, how long? And they're not. So from 2018, let's go back in the fossil record. How long were they supposedly around? Were they supposedly around? 300 to 400 million years. So that sucker, okay, has been around for 400 million years. 400 million years. Now. Here's the deal. If it has been around for 400 million years, um, there would be, wouldn't, wouldn't you think there'd be some dramatic changes in that creature over 400 million years? Nope, looks the same. Catch one now, was good 400 million years ago? You eat it then, you eat it now. I don't believe it's 400 million years old, but there he is. There he is. And there's his cousin 400 million years later. Kissing cousins exactly the same. Okay, so here's the thing. 
if, it, if, if that was, there was no change in the coelacanth over 400 million years, it got me thinking, how long did it take for us to evolve? So, so the horseshoe crab, half a million, billion, half a billion years, half a billion years, the coelacanth, pretty much half a billion years, no changes at all. Then it got me thinking, how long did it take for us to evolve? So I'm going to read you something here. I'm going to read this to you. All right. Most of the mammal species were small, ranging from about the size of a mouse up to a medium-sized domesticated dog. The large grass-eating mammals, such as cattle and wildebeest, now don't lose this, okay, were absent. They were absent, as were the vast grasslands that would later develop. They were, they were absent, and then they were unabsent. Okay, they were absent in the fossil record, and then all of a sudden they were unabsent. They were there. It was amazing. Rodents and seed-eating, seed-eating birds were also absent what does it mean i said to myself what does it mean to be in this in the way their worldview is what does it mean to be absent so i look up the definition of absent i know what it means but i wanted to see exactly what it means not present missing non-existent so these things did not exist and then okay and then then okay you got it there's the wording they appeared in the fossil record so they didn't exist at all, any of the things I just described. And then they appeared in the fossil record. So let me, before your heads explode, because you walk out of here and go, no, I don't know how they got here. I'm going to explain it to you, okay? I'm going to explain it to you. In Genesis, so first they were absent. In Genesis 1.20, then God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. They were absent, and God said, and then they weren't absent. And they show up in the, they appear in the fossil record. In Genesis 1.24, and God said, there was no, say first, there's no cattle. It says, let me say, the large grass-eating mammals, all of them, such as cattle and wildebeest, were absent. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to their own kind. And it was so. But don't listen to me. I'm illogical. So I went back and because I don't like to do this. I don't like this, just have my own view. And I've studied this and studied this, but I like to go back and hear again from the other perspective. The Royal Societies, this is an article from the Royal Society. Why animals appear so late in the fossil record is still unclear. Is it? I'll explain it to you. And then another quote for Darwin. The apparent appearance in the fossil record of many animal groups with few or no antecedents caused great trouble. I totally agree with Charles Darwin. Okay? It causes me great trouble as well. They're not there, then they're, they're, they're absent, and then they appear in the fossil record. It causes them great trouble. Well, should it cause you great trouble? How could something not be there and then be there? The first primate-like mammals or proto-mammals were supposedly involved 55 to 65 million years ago. Say, so we're going back to, okay, how long did it take us to get in this room and hanging out with each other, interacting? How long did it take? They're saying 55 to 60 million years. 
These, these things that we evolved from were roughly, were roughly similar to squirrels or tree shrews in size and appearance. Okay? So how long did it take? So let's walk through the evolution of Jeff. We're going to walk through the evolution of Jeff. There I am. You can tell a little bit. I got the nose. My nose goes, you know what I'm saying? You can, you can see a little bit. I lost the tail. I didn't like the tail. It didn't have any hair. So I decided, got to get some hair in my tail, for goodness sake. You know what I'm saying? I, like, see the ears there? I think the ears are much cuter. You, can, you notice the eyes are cuter, and my nose has gotten cuter, and I'm fuzzy. I'm much fuzzier. And then as time went on, I got even cuter. There I am, right? Lost some of the hair. I still have hair on my head. Um, that was cuter. And then as time went on, there I am. This is where I was living in a man cave, right? I found my woman. I grabbed her by the hair. I dragged her in my man cave. And I call this the Vinnie Barbazoic era, okay? I, was, I went, this went from there to the Vinnie Barbazoic era. Some of you are laughing. Some of you are completely confused. Those who are laughing can explain it to you later on, Okay. The Vinnie Barbazoic era, okay, and I lived in my man cave, and then I evolved into, and that is actually a small coelacanth, okay, that I caught in the, in the pond of one of our friends, right, Joe and Joy Ply, let me fish up there, I caught a coelacanth, I put it back so it wouldn't be extinct, but you can see, you can see the evolution, and it only took, that only took 55, 60 million years or so, so, I went from a mousy-looking squirrel thing to this fine specimen of a man in only 60 million years, okay? But the coelacanth, the, the horseshoe crab, and thousands of other species, okay, that are existing today, there are some that are existing plants and some animals in the ocean that they say are 800 million years old, and there they still are exactly the same. So the things that we actually have that we can test and see, they haven't changed. Things we can't see, ha-ha, I went from a mouse to a this, and here I am. I almost didn't survive the Vinnie Barbazoic era, but here I am. I used to say dog all the time. I talk like them too. I lost, I lost that whole New York accent going from New York to Florida to Massachusetts to here. And here is when I lost it completely. I just lost it completely. So, but I, but I evolved into what you see today. You know what I'm saying? I lost the whole thing. So let me read Emily's statement again. I cannot and therefore will not accept the idea of creation. It requires me to eliminate rationality, logic, evidence. I just can't do that. So let me close with this. I cannot and therefore will not accept the idea of evolution. It requires me to eliminate rationality, logic, and evidence. Just can't do that. But what I can do is take communion. I can take communion because I have been created. I appeared in the fossil record at one point to worship God. Okay? To worship him. And don't think I'm being like sacrilegious when I say that. I did appear in the fossil record at some point because God created me. Okay, and it wasn't 65 million years ago. And I have been created to worship him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take communion right now. We're going to pick up this subject again next week. But here's the cool thing. Next week, I'm bringing one of the top scientists in the world in to answer some of these questions. NASA called 15 or 20 scientists in the United States of America to help them work on their space program. He was one of those men. 
So he'll be here next week, and we're going to talk about things that will boggle all of our minds, and hopefully we'll understand what the guy's saying, because um, he's brilliant. But I just wanted to bring him in to, to help you, especially you younger ones. I wanted to bring someone like that in to help you understand this is not the fact that these intellectuals believe one thing and these poor, dopey people over here believe in God. Some of the most brilliant men in the world, okay, throughout history and today, okay, are clear as crystal that there is a God. And look at this stuff and ask these questions and say, hey, you're missing a lot here. You got a lot of questions to answer. So we're going to bring them. We're going to bring him in next week. But let's take communion together this morning. I'm going to read from First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. After I read, I'm going to pray for the bread and the cup. After I do that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to to get up from your seats as the Spirit leads you. There's tables back here. There's a table here. You can go back. You don't have to wait for anybody else. When I'm finished praying, you can get up. You can go back. You can either take it to your seat. You can come up here and pray. However the Spirit leads you. And you don't have to wait for anybody else to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. Okay? Just allow the Spirit to move in your heart and just recognize the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11:23 it says, "For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, "This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, "This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his body, which was given to us, sacrificed for us on the cross, that we could have a personal relationship with you, that we could live eternally with you. We thank you for that sacrifice. Father, we thank you for the cup, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. That blood that covers us, covers over all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our weaknesses. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ covering us, we have the privilege of being able to enter into the Holy of Holies, to be able to come into your presence and talk to you right now like I'm talking to you. Thank you that I can have a conversation with you. Because I have a personal relationship with you. Because when you see me, you don't see me. You see your son, Jesus Christ. And his blood that covers me. You see perfection because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. I thank you for that. That I can be called your son. Or that I can be called your daughter. Thank you for that. So, God, we want to give you all the praise and all the glory as we take communion, Lord God, and we would that we would truly remember that even after all the laughter and the fun that we had this morning going through these questions, that we would seriously take these questions to those who may not know you and ask them so that their minds begin to process through their worldview and that they recognize that their worldview is empty and void without you. So help us to memorize and ask these questions. Even if we don't understand all the answers, we're asking the questions this time. And may it be in such a way that is kind and considerate and respectful 
but allows people to process through their own worldview and be drawn into the relationship that we have this morning so that we can take communion and remember what you've done for us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.